Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. How can you tell when a society is about to collapse? No, seriously, this isn't some joke or riddle. It's a legitimate question. I always thought that things like the days of Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah signal the beginning of the end, but it almost seems like the opposite is true from what we're being told. Like, the more we believe in this magical sky god written about in an old dusty book by a bunch of oppressive patriarchal white men, probably Trump supporters, who needed some way to justify the existence of thunder and lightning, the more we just spiral out of control, becoming more and more disconnected from the truth of almighty science, which just leads to bad things, apparently, allegedly. On today's episode, first we'll talk about the systematic dismantling of the United States, then we'll possibly find out why it seems like we're in opposite world, and finally, a serious review of a serious situation. So grab your favorite gavel, blow the dust off your Bible, and seriously, get your prayer list out. And here we go. Well, at the time I'm sketching out this review, the Supreme Court of these United States have had an unbelievable session, which will come to a close this week with the final few rulings. And I say unbelievable, which can have two connotations, depending on which side of the aisle you generally fall on, the correct side or the left. (laughs) Whoops, did I say that out loud? Well, there's no way to take that back. Now, anywho, I think the term meltdown has become very apt these days as every ruling is just throwing another log onto the woke, emotion-driven, screeching leftist horde fire. And why? Well, it's because full-blown Christianity has broken out. And as I saw one commentator say, we're basically living in a theocracy now. Now, you may not see it, or feel it, or believe it, but if the left says it, you know it must be true. I guess 2022 is the year of the Third Great Awakening, right? Eh. I kind of wish, but if nothing else, it's become defining, I think. Remaining neutral in this world is becoming impossible to do. It should have never been impossible to do. If you're a Christian, you should be very bold about your beliefs. And yes, despite my example, you can be bold without being obnoxious. I'd say that part of the reason we're in the mess we are is because Christians across the country have generally been passive. They don't bother us, we don't bother them, and everything is all good. In fact, I'd say that if there was a wall separating church and state, it's a very flimsy wall being shoved on by one group trying to trample it over while being held up very gingerly on the other side by people that kind of figure if we just don't say anything, maybe they'll stop pushing the wall of their own accord. Well, we're stupid, and now we see it. Now, it may not be too late, but it sure is very late. And as the rulings come in on a variety of pretty high-profile cases, a certain demographic of people are losing whatever remains of their drug-addled, groomed, perverted, indoctrinated minds. And the first major domino to fall was on June 21st. 
found on Vox.com, headline, The Supreme Court Tears a New Hole in the Wall Separating Church and State. Wow, Vox, such, a, such violent imagery. I think I'll need a safe space to go to to think about my feelings about this. The court case, termed Carson v. Macon, was a seemingly simple one. Very basically, Maine said that if there are students in rural parts of the state that don't have schools or good schools nearby, they can get a voucher to get into whatever private school they'd like. Not whatever they'd like, whatever they'd like that's not a Christian school. You know, because of the constitutional edict that church and state shall never meet. So the case was brought claiming that that kind of seemed somewhat discriminatory and felt wrong. It made it to the Supreme Court where the justices ruled 6-3 that Maine cannot discriminate against a specific type of school if they want to do the voucher thing. They didn't say they had to do the vouchers at all, but if they did, they need to not be discriminatory. Well, as Vox said, quote, Carson v. Macon is a serious but not fatal blow to the wall separating church and state. <laughs> Phew, at least, it's, at least it's not fatal. They explained that the court used to require the government remained neutral regarding religion. You know, because the First Amendment says that it, quote, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. They go on to say, quote, in practice... That meant that the government could neither impose burdens on religious institutions that it didn't impose on others, nor could it actively subsidize religion. Ah, well, we don't need to go any farther in the article, to be honest, except for the statement that, quote, the court's Republican appointees view neutrality toward religion as a form of discrimination. Okay, so here's the deal. The First Amendment, with regard to religion, actually says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This has nothing to do with subsidizing religion. This means that the government needs to keep their nose out of religion. That's it. What Vox and the woke mob doesn't understand, or really doesn't care to understand, is that the government is not allowed to single out a religion as the sole pariah, that is, literally, discrimination. In fact, it is imposing non-religion, or in fact imposing the humanist religion, on kids by not allowing parents to freely choose which school they send their kids to. And this would go the same way if the state gave vouchers that were only good for Christian schools. That would also be wrong. The state, the government, needs to be completely neutral with regard to religions and religious institutions, as in, they don't see them as a religion, they see them as the service or the institution that they are, and that's all. Things got worse, though. In the case of Kennedy v. Bremerton, in brief, and I covered this in a past episode, high school football coach Kennedy would kneel at center field after a game and offer a quick prayer of thanks to God. Despite what the demonic minions would have you believe, he never once asked the kids, told the kids, or otherwise pressured the kids to pray with him. Some of them came to him and asked if they could join him, to which he told them they could do what they wanted. It was a free country. So they did. Well, that got not his school, but the panties of other schools all in a nasty wad, and they complained. So he was told to stop. Well, he moved from midfield to the sidelines, a 
place much more private, told the kids to stop joining him or else he was going to get fired. And then the other schools, the competitors, in a show of solidarity, the other teams actually came across the field to kneel and pray with him. So he was fired for his proselytizing. This once again was a violation of the wall separating church and state, allegedly. Well, the SCOTUS came out with their ruling, and once again, 6-3, to decided constitutionally, correctly, that he was not acting in an official capacity as a state employee. He was not praying as part of the discharging of his duties as the paid coach. He was not forcing or coercing kids to join him. And bottom line, he absolutely has a right to pray in a public space if he so chooses. Well, again, the leftist brainless morons who don't understand the Constitution are just beside themselves. And sadly, that includes Justice Sotomayor, one of the worst activist justices ever. She wrote that the decision, quote, elevates one individual's interest in personal religious exercise in the exact time and place of that individual's choosing over society's interest in protecting the separation between church and state, eroding the protections for religious liberty for all. <laughs> Again, separation of church and state. Interesting. I say interesting because, curiously, what we don't see regarding the constitutional separation of church and state is quoted text from the Constitution. Past cases, standing precedent, those are spoken of, but nothing from the Constitution. And that's because, although these activists want there to be a constitutional wall, that could eventually be tipped over to crush the Christians, there is none. The separation of church and state doesn't exist. It's not a legally binding anything. This phrasing stems from a letter written from representatives of the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut to Thomas Jefferson, the newly elected president, and specifically the response from Jefferson. I'd like to read both letters, neither are very long, so that you can have a working knowledge of what this phrase truly means and can speak with authority when someone uses this phrasing incorrectly. <laughs> and they will. Starting with the letter from the Association. Sir, among the many million in America and Europe who rejoice in your election to office, we embrace the first opportunity which we have enjoyed in our collective capacity since your inauguration to express our great satisfaction in your appointment to the chief magistracy oof, in the United States. And though our mode of expression may be less courtly and pompous than what many others clothe their addresses with, we beg you, sir, to believe that none are more sincere." Pretty solid opening. They continue. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, that no man ought to suffer in name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions, that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbors. But, sir, our constitution of government is not specific. 
our ancient charter together with the law made coincident therewith were adopted as the basis of our government at the time of our revolution, and such had been our laws and usages, and such still are, that religion is considered as the first object of legislation, and therefore what religious privileges we enjoy as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted, and not as inalienable rights. And these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments as are inconsistent with the rights of free men. It is not to be wondered at, therefore, if those who seek after power and gain under the pretense of government and religion should reproach their fellow men, should reproach their order magistrate, as an enemy of religion, law, and good order, because he will not, dare not, assume the prerogative of Jehovah and make laws to govern the kingdom of Christ. Sir, we are sensible that the President of the United States is not the national legislator, and also sensible that the national government cannot destroy the laws of each state, but our hopes are strong that the sentiments of our beloved President, which have had such genial effect already, like the radiant beams of the sun, will shine and prevail through all these states and all the world till hierarchy and tyranny be destroyed from the earth. Sir, when we reflect on your past services and see a glow of philanthropy and goodwill shining forth in a course of more than 30 years, we have reason to believe that America's God has raised you up to fill the chair of state out of that goodwill which he bears to the millions which you preside over. May God strengthen you for your arduous task which providence and the voice of the people have called you to sustain and support you enjoy administration against all the predetermined opposition of those who wish to raise to wealth and importance on the poverty and subjection of the people. And may the Lord preserve you safe from every evil and bring you at last to his heavenly kingdom through Jesus Christ, our glorious mediator. Signed on behalf of the association, Nehemiah Dodge, Ephraim Robbins, Stephen S. Nelson. So bottom line, they wanted assurance that the government was going to keep their fingers out of the free exercise of religion, that religion is a right granted by God, not by man. They saw that the phrasing in the Constitution, even then, was kind of loose. They wanted to be sure that they weren't going to have to fight for their existence. So Jefferson replied, Gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you are so good as to express toward me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association give me the highest satisfaction. My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion, as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing." Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man 
all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man, and tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem. Thomas Jefferson, January 1, 1802. Jefferson reiterated the phrasing of the First Amendment and said that the simple phrase places a wall of separation that does not allow the government any right to come between man worshiping his God. In no way and at no time and in no place in the Constitution does that wall exist in the other direction. At no point did the founders or any politicians since place a clause as part of or as an individual amendment to the Constitution that says that religion is mandated to stay out of the affairs of the state or that the state must ignore, shun, or discriminate against people and institutions of faith. It's simply not a thing. Of course, you have geniuses like the NYDailyNews.com asking the question, what if Coach Kennedy were a Muslim? And this is written by Alan Dershowitz, a very smart but very ideologically left lawyer. Sadly, although he's very right in a lot of things he says, he says the following, which is both disingenuous and a made-up lie. I, I'm frankly shocked that Dershowitz actually wrote this. He said, and, and I'm going to break in to correct him at certain points here, but he said, quote, The Supreme Court has affirmed the right of Coach Joe Kennedy to invite his players, public school students, to join him in Christian prayer right after a football game. Okay. No, they didn't. He never did this to begin with. He told them to stop, which they did, and the court's ruling specifically said that he had the right to pray of his own accord in an unofficial capacity. Now, if the students join him, that's on them. Dershowitz started his commentary with a complete lie, and I guarantee he knows it. He's too smart of a guy not to know exactly what he's doing. He continues, quote, Do you think it would have been the same decision if, instead of Christian prayer, Kennedy had been leading his students in Muslim prayer? What if, instead of Christian prayer, he was stating his atheist beliefs? Quote, There is no God. You won the game through your own efforts. Stop praying in vain. Okay. He wasn't leading anyone in prayer. He was praying on his own. Some students joined him and also prayed on their own. If he was leading them in prayer, that would have been official capacity and would have been ruled against. This makes his questions regarding Muslim or atheist beliefs moot, but if he was praying toward Mecca on his own or whatever, as long as he wasn't hurting anyone, as long as he wasn't damaging anything, as long as he was doing it outside of his job as a coach, since the court ruled on the constitutionality of him doing it, Yes, they would have ruled the same way. Finally, Dershowitz says, quote, Do we really think that any public school would permit such regular prayer to the exclusion of others? Would they permit Muslim prayer at all? Would they tolerate atheist proclamations? Well, first, by not allowing the Christian perspective in the school, say, regarding the teaching of evolution, they are literally tolerating and promoting atheist proclamations. So, Yes, they would tolerate those. Regarding the school permitting a Muslim prayer, well, they can do what they want, and they might find themselves in court again. Per the ruling of the SCOTUS on this case, I'd say that if a Muslim did the exact same thing, he or she would also be allowed to continue. 
Sadly, Dershowitz goes on fluffing out his premise based on absolute lies and spin. There's no need to cover any more of that. One more article. Just today, as of the time of writing this, TheHill.com posted an article headline, Bobert says she is tired of separation between church and state. Quote, the church is supposed to direct the government. Well, as one could expect, those at the Hill, shall we say, were in disagreement with Representative Lauren Bobert of Colorado. Speaking in front of the Cornerstone Christian Center on Sunday, which, incidentally, I adamantly disagree with a church handing over a pulpit to any politician for the Sunday message. That's a different issue for a different day. Now, The Hill selectively quotes Bobert, so I went to the video that they linked to at a timestamp after she made her remarks, so really helpful, The Hill. I wanted to get her full quote. That's why I went to the video, which I did. And I've got. And she said, quote, The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of the separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. End quote. Now, the Hill claims that what she said is false, that the Founding Fathers did, in fact, intend to divide religion and government. They, as all leftists do, conveniently find the Constitution when they think they can glean and twist something out of there, and they go back to the single phrase in the First Amendment, the one that Jefferson pretty clearly defined in his letter. The left never does mention that Jefferson actually started with that clause and explained it in context. Curious that they don't do that. Now, The Hill does mention the letter, surprisingly, or maybe not, they probably had to, as Bobert mentioned it, and they said, quote, In 1802, then-President Thomas Jefferson penned a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut, in which he wrote, The American public had built, quote, a wall of separation between church and state, end quote. States have long adhered to the principle since Jefferson's letter. The Supreme Court applied the clause to states with the 14th Amendment and has used the doctrine to uphold such a wall. Now, what I find interesting is that they only quoted eight words of Jefferson's letter, the magic words, as it were, but they left out the entire context of the phrase, as it includes the clause from the First Amendment and destroys their case. Odd they'd leave that out. Probably just an oversight on their part. Oh well. So let me wrap this up. I do not believe that the church should direct the government. I disagree with Lauren Boebert on that one. I know some will disagree with me, and that's fine. But the way I see it, we were not set up as, and we were never intended to be, a theocracy. You cannot have a free country in a sin-cursed world that can run as a theocracy unless you rule with an iron fist, and then you're really not free. The days of a theocracy will come, but it will be done perfectly by a perfect ruler. We as humans are not able to pull that off, and we'll screw it up really badly. That said, I do agree that the church is 100% complicit in what this country has become. The Constitution isn't perfect, but I'd argue that it's the most perfect form of man-made government ever created, and I think its longevity testifies to that claim. I do believe that it was divinely inspired. I do believe that God definitely had, maybe still has, a specific purpose and use for this country, and we were set up to fulfill that purpose, ultimately, to bring God glory. 
I don't know what the future will hold, but prophesying the future is not what we're called to do, so I really don't worry about it. I do worry about what I can do. Now, I'm not a politician. I'd never get voted in anywhere. But even if just to a small audience, I can bring awareness to my friends on Facebook, my podcast listeners, and my real-life friends and acquaintances. And I can vote for the candidates that most closely align with my beliefs, which should be biblically based. And if every one of us did that, rather than wasting all our time you know, posting nonsense memes, selfies, and pictures of our food, which is fine to do in moderation, and if we'd stop wasting all our time with idle chatter, which again is fine in moderation, and if we spent some of that time being serious, that's all it would take. The idea that if one person can wake up two others, that's literally how a movement is made. That requires you and I to be just a little bold, step out, make our views known, not obnoxiously, but unwaveringly. The beauty of the conservative view is that it's generally a biblical view, more or less. Defending the conservative view is much easier than defending the liberal view, which is why online disagreements generally break down into straw man and ad hominem attacks pretty quickly as their positions are indefensible. So let me encourage you, don't be afraid to make your positions, your beliefs known. Again, if you can reach two, you could be the catalyst that started a movement that brought this nation back to the Constitution and back toward biblical principles. As I said in the opening of this podcast, episode zero, the intro, I want to look at the news through the lens of the true truth rather than the lens of man-made truth, which is as fickle and unpredictable as changing as the wind from day to day. In fact, these days, trying to lock down the truth is impossible from man's point of view. I could tell you my pronouns are he, him one minute, then five minutes later when you're referencing me to the boss, quote, he said this item isn't in the back... I could get you reprimanded or fired by changing my immediate truth and claiming my pronouns are now it, they, and you are oppressing me by not asking my pronouns immediately before referencing me, just assuming that my truth from five minutes earlier is still my truth. Now, that doesn't work in the real world, as your truth that the overloaded dump truck about to plow into you head-on isn't real doesn't really matter. Your truth that gas is only one penny per gallon will get you in trouble, or these days in the right state and or city, <laughs> maybe not. Your truth that the cancer isn't cancer won't make the cancer go away. But for some reason, although we are blanketed with undeniable truths in this world, irrefutable natural laws, we've decided we can just pick and choose what things we decide are unchangeably true and what things are subjectively true. If I decide I'm a different gender, a different creature, that's fine. But if I decide that there are only two genders, that's wrong and hateful. If I decide that human life isn't human life in the womb, that's okay. But if I decide that human life isn't human life in the streets of a city or in a school, well, that's wrong. If I decide that being morbidly obese is healthy and beautiful, that's fine. But if I decide that I shouldn't be morbidly obese because it's not attractive and it's really unhealthy, that's hurtful and wrong. Truth today is subjective, mostly based on feelings, if we can get away with it. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you likely understand what I'm saying, but are as frustrated by the implications of an ever-shifting base of truth as I am. So why are we seeing this slide into insanity? We know there are two genders, which happen to be the two sexes, which happen to be those that were created by God at the beginning, male and female. You can call yourself what you want, but that's either blatant, knowing deceit, or it's a mental illness. There are no other options. You can call yourself whatever creature you want, but we know that if you're human, you're human. The rest is either mental illness or playing pretend. Again, no other options. As I've said before, as I will maintain to my last breath, we have one single source of true truth, the Bible. God set up the natural laws, like the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of time, etc., that govern the physical creation. God set up the basis for all truth, all knowledge, all wisdom that governs the inner man. God revealed the reality, to the degree we need, of history, of who we are, why we are, what we are, to understand our origins. And God revealed the depravity of man, the selfishness and sinfulness of man, the reason we see what we see today, the morals, ethics, rules, and laws to live by, the potential of salvation, and the ultimate future of man, either positive or negative all relating to our spiritual selves. But as I've stated before, as I'm implying now, once we disconnect ourselves from the true truth found in the Bible, in fact, written on our hearts and encoded in our very DNA, we no longer have anything to anchor ourselves to, so anything goes. And that is what we're seeing today. Found on news.gallup.com, headline, Fewer in U.S. now see Bible as literal word of God. Ah! That's probably fine, you know, based on how it sounds and what we're seeing at every second of the day in the U.S. (sighs) So Gallup, against all odds, conducted a poll. I mean, who would have thought? This poll has been conducted since 1976 with three possible answers to the main question. Do you believe the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally? Believe the Bible is inspired by God, not all to be taken literally. Or believe the Bible is a collection of fables, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Back in 1976, about 39% of the respondents believed that the Bible is the actual word of God, to be taken literally. At that time, about 15% believed that the Bible was just fables. 1980 had the largest spread between those two worldviews at 40% and about 10% respectively. That spread narrowed until the early 90s, and then widened, then narrowed, then widened, then narrowed, never coming close to that same spread. And then in about 2008, the lines on the graph nearly came together, then spread again slightly, and in 2017, the lines finally crossed, where more people believe the Bible is fable, and less that believe it's the actual word of God that should be taken literally. And now, in 2022, we have 20% that believe the Bible is the actual Word of God, and 29% that believe the Bible is nothing but fables. Side note, the percentage of those believing the Bible is inspired by God, but not all is to be taken literally, has stayed fairly stable between 45 and 50%. As would be expected, those that identify as Christian believe the Bible is the actual Word of God at a rate slightly higher, 25%. Only 16% believe it's fables. I have a few questions here. 
and we'll come back to that. If you peel the onion a bit more, we find that 30% of Protestants believe the Bible is the actual Word of God, while only 15% of Catholics believe that. More questions need to be asked. Breaking it down differently, we see that those that identify as evangelical or born-again Christians believe the Bible is the actual Word of God at a rate of 40% versus 8% that believe it's a fable collection. Those that attend church weekly believe it at a rate of 44% to 2%, respectively. Non-college graduates believe it at a rate of 24% to 25%, respectively. College graduates sit at 14% to 35% respectively. So with all these numbers, here's what I'm claiming. Number one, the Bible is a very reliable document. In fact, the most reliable document in history. Number two, the Bible is the actual Word of God and should be interpreted literally, but literal must be defined carefully. Number three, salvation requires a literal interpretation of certain areas of the Bible, the core doctrines. Belief that any of the core doctrines are not to be taken literally makes salvation impossible, and belief that other non-core doctrines are not to be taken literally will make belief in the core doctrines and thus salvation more difficult, but not necessarily impossible. And then number four, despite the salvation of individual people, connection to basic biblical principles, morals, and ethics is required for a society to be grounded in truth. Conversely, a disconnection from the Bible will result in general levels of chaos. We see polls that come out all the time that say that 70% or 80% or more possibly of the U.S. claim to be Christians. However, those that believe the Bible is the actual word of God is 20%. Those two numbers can't work together. I'm confident in saying a much smaller percentage of Americans are actually born-again Christians than think they are, which means the Bible saying that there will be those that will say, but Lord, did I not, will be absolutely accurate and in large numbers. It also means that at least in the U.S., those of us that are Christians have not done enough, or we've done a very poor job of standing and proclaiming what we believe to be true. So let's break down my four claims, starting with, is the Bible reliable? In general, and you can look up the very specific numbers, we currently have over 5,800 copies of manuscripts, either in part or whole, of the New Testament. The oldest copies are less than 100 years from the actual events, and the manuscripts all agree. Now, there are some copyist errors, a letter different here or there, two transposed letters, two transposed words. These are simple copyist errors, but there aren't any manuscripts that contradict any other manuscripts, causing any confusion as to the message, the doctrines that are being communicated. In comparison, the second most verified ancient historical document is the Iliad by Homer. There are only 643 copies, so just over 10% of the New Testament manuscripts, with the earliest known manuscript about 400 years after the initial writing. So not really comparable at all when you look at it. Bottom line, the Bible as we have it today is a reliable document, as in what we have today is what was originally written. So regardless of if it's true or not, it is accurately transcribed. So what does it mean that we should take the Bible literally? And should we take the Bible literally? 
This needs to be carefully defined, as detractors will use a very literal definition for the word literally. In other words, if the Bible says it, they claim that Christians believe it's true. For example, in the book of Psalms, it references the pillars of the earth. Now, does the earth actually rest on pillars? There are those in the flat earther community that say it might. There are those that are not Christians that accuse Christians of being flat earthers because of statements like this. But no, it literally does not. Did the writer of Psalm 75, likely David, literally write that psalm? Yes, he literally did. Did he literally believe the earth rested on pillars? I'd say that's very unlikely, but we definitely can't conclude that from the figurative language he was using in the psalm. When taken in the context with which it was written, this is nothing but poetic license to express the sovereignty and omnipotence of God, no matter the situation. There are various ways to classify the genres of literature found in the Bible, but in a very basic sense, we can see six different main categories. The first is narrative, or historical, which contains the law. This is information similar to what is found in our history books. It's intended to be taken literally. It literally happened. It's literally true. Next is poetry. This is just like our poetry today. A lot of imagery, a lot of flowery language to express emotion, etc. There could be literal facts in there, and will be in certain cases, but that's not the point of poetry. So it was literally written by literal people, but in figurative ways to convey the point. Next we have wisdom literature. This is great information. Think Proverbs. This should literally be taken as good advice. This should not be taken as laws, mandates, or commands, and it should not be read as an if-then type of promise. For instance, I recently heard a pastor, a solid Christian man, I wouldn't question that, but he made the comment that he struggled his whole adult life with the promise that if you, quote, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. See, his struggle was why we don't see this come true. Where is the disconnect? We see children that are raised in great Christian homes with great parents, a great church, and they absolutely fall off the rails, renounce everything, and never come back. The problem this pastor was having was that he was taking wisdom literature, a passage in Proverbs, as a promise. This was not a promise. It was never intended to be a promise. This is simply good advice. As parents, this is what we can do and should do, and that's all. Wisdom literature should be taken as literal advice. But that's it. Next, we have prophecy. Okay, this is tough stuff. Prophecy should be taken as very literal. The events of Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, and so on are very literal prophecies of events that were yet to come, and in some cases are still yet to come. But although they are to be taken very literal, they're mostly written in very figurative language. So the imagery that John writes in Revelation was the best descriptions he could come up with for what he saw. But that doesn't mean we can take it as literally what we'll experience. His description of what he called locusts that looked like horses prepared for battle with crowns of gold on their heads and human faces is likely the best he could do. And when that time comes, we'll probably be able to recognize his imagery, but it's very unlikely that we'll see actual locusts with literal crowns, armor, and human faces. So very literal prophecy in very figurative terms. And then the final two categories are the Gospels and then the epistles or teachings. 
Now, these are a mix of all of the above. They are literally written by real people. They have very literal historical and narrative accounts. They also contain poetry. They also contain prophecy. They also contain wisdom. So, just as we must understand books that are all or nearly all of one genre, we need to recognize the genre of the text we're reading in the Gospels and Epistles to understand how we are to use what we're reading. So the Bible is literally correct and is literally written by real people and literally contains all the genres of writing that all writings throughout history have utilized. In other words, we need to use our brains a little when reading the Bible and not do what the non-Christian world does with the text. Now, in moving into salvation, into being born again, although I personally believe that we should take the Bible literally as in all of the historical narratives should be taken as history, as written, the reality is that salvation for us is very simplistic which is ironically one reason why some people won't consider the Protestant Christian faith as being a viable belief system. Salvation is quite simply stated as repentance and belief, or some will say repentance and faith. Either way, there are only two components to salvation. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to atone for our own sins. We don't have to perform continual penance. There are no hoops to jump through, no specific words to say, no need to walk an aisle, raise a hand, or answer an altar call. The thief on the cross was promised by God himself, the Son, Jesus, that he would join Jesus in paradise that very day. He was saved. And why? He repented and expressed faith. If you blink, you'll miss it. As Jesus hung on the cross, the people, the guards, the Jews, and the two criminals hanging on either side mocked and derided Jesus. At some point, one of the criminals had a change of heart, a change of mind. One might say his eyes were opened and heart regenerated, not of his own doing, but supernaturally by God. We read that one of the criminals mocked Jesus, saying if he was actually the Christ, save yourself. The other criminal, eyes now opened, asked, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. In this simple statement, repentance occurred. His recognition that he was a sinner, a guilty criminal, getting what he deserved and admitting such, was in fact repentance. He then looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This was his expression of faith. He again, not from study, not from his own careful piecing together of the prophecies, not from sitting under teachings for years, not from an altar call or praying a rehearsed prayer, expressed his faith that Jesus was who he said he was, despite the specific circumstance they all found themselves in. And Jesus simply responded, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That thief was as saved as Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther or Paul himself. The difference between then and now is that the thief did this unwittingly, in all reality. I personally believe that there are those in regions that have yet to be touched with the actual Bible, the actual gospel, that will be saved. Now, this is up to God, and ultimately I trust him, but I do believe that there are those that will repent and believe without a theological understanding of what or who. That said, if you're listening to this podcast, you have access to a Bible at a minimum and likely other theological works. You and I have no excuse for not understanding the gospel. So what are the core doctrines that we must believe in order to be saved? In other words, I'll ignore the repent side of things. I've covered this in previous episodes, but what does believe actually mean? 
Very basically, belief encompasses Jesus in all aspects. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God and is equal to God and is God. We must believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, was fully God and fully man, and lived a perfect, sinless life. We must believe that Jesus was crucified to pay for our sins, died, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. And finally, we need to believe that we are saved by grace through faith, both given to us by God, and our works have nothing to do with this salvation. Any disbelief in any of those points will make salvation impossible. God doesn't grade on a curve. God has set the law, passed judgment, made very clear the penalty for not repenting and believing, but also paid the penalty of our sin and provided the only way to live with him forever upon the end of our life on this earth. These are essential beliefs for salvation. Belief in other doctrines, such as a six-day creation, the worldwide flood, the destruction of Sodom, Jonah being swallowed by the great fish, and so on, are not required for salvation. I say that, but what I also believe is that whenever we compromise portions of the Bible, especially portions of the Bible that Jesus or other apostles reference directly, like creation, like the flood, like Jonah, we come dangerously close to compromising our beliefs in the core doctrines. Can we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, that he lived a sinless life, if he either knowingly or unknowingly referenced these historical events as being true? I maintain that compromise in other non-core doctrines compromises the ability for someone to believe the core doctrines. So the majority of people in this Gallup poll who believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but not all to be taken literally, first need to define what they mean by literal, and second, need to be very careful based on their answer to the first question. Again, although polls year after year say that 80% or more claim to be Christians in the United States, I'd say that we're down to 70% automatically based on the 29% that don't believe the Bible is God's word. And then I'd say that of the 49% that don't believe the entire Bible is to be taken literally, some percentage are not saved. Some are. And what that split is, well, further digging would be required. But even if we split it 50-50, we're looking at about 45% of the population being saved. Now, I'll be honest, I personally believe we're much closer to the 20% rather than the 45% or more. What we do know for sure is that there is a large percentage, potentially the majority of the American population, that is not saved, and easily the majority of the population that believes that some or all of the Bible is not to be taken literally. Unfortunately, when you get people in positions of power who decide that we must remove even the principles of Christianity from society and rely instead on human wisdom, human laws, human emotionalism as our guiding principles, we get what we get. The two greatest commandments, love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself, have been removed. Even if loving God is not what someone is interested in doing, the last six of the Ten Commandments all have to do specifically with loving your neighbor. But disconnecting humanity from the commandments, from the golden rule, and instead focusing people on self, self-esteem, self-worth, self-expression, personal emotional health, etc., we get a society that feels that whatever they deem to be the most important thing to them should be the most important thing. This creates the selfishness we see in crime, in relationships, in physical or emotional abuse, in drug and substance abuse, etc. We can look to any of the many, many societies throughout the Bible itself, societies that have been verified as being real and accurately represented in the Bible, and that rejected God to see what happens when you eliminate God and more generally the morals, ethics, and principles that he provided for us. 
Major examples would be the world prior to the flood. The thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. The angels couldn't even find ten righteous people, and that was starting with four already, Lot and his family, so there weren't even six more people in Sodom that were considered righteous. The Assyrians in the capital city of Nineveh were spared for a short time when they repented in response to Jonah's eventual warning from God, but they, a brutal, godless nation, were eventually destroyed 100 to 150 years later as they fell back into their godless ways. So where does this leave us? Well, the United States isn't the promised land. We aren't the new Israel. We aren't promised or covenanted anything. Those of us, the Gentiles that have been saved, are grafted on as children of God, but that's it. So what is our future? Well, short term, I have no idea. It's possible that we repent. It's possible that God extends mercy to us for a time yet. But in our current state, we see what rejection of God and rejection of God's principles gets us. A nation of dissension, lies, chaos, anger, violence, destruction, selfishness, and generally the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. So what do we do? Well, first, our churches need to be shored up. Those churches that preach a gospel not found in the Bible or believe that we should stay away from society, just wall ourselves up, eh, those need to go away. This starts with you and I knowing what we believe. We must read our Bible. We must know what the truth is and hold our pastors accountable. The idea to touch not the Lord's anointed has absolutely nothing to do with pastors today. That was kings and judges back then in context that has nothing to do with us today. If our pastors routinely denigrate the Bible or preach a different gospel, they don't need to be pastors, and they don't need a congregation listening to them. Additionally, we need to be always prepared to give an answer. Again, this comes down to you and I. Although rock-solid gospel preaching, Bible-believing pastors are part of our growth, and although rock-solid past and present theologians are great sources for increased knowledge and learning, we are ultimately responsible to learn, know, and grow in biblical knowledge. Part of that is to know the core doctrines, those doctrines that are secondary and tertiary and their importance, and the genres of literature contained in the Bible and how they're to be read and understood, and the fact that the Bible is literally the most reliable document on the face of the planet in all of history. Knowing the logistics and specifics, combining it with the truth of the Bible, holding each other and our pastors and elders accountable, and being able to reach people with the true truth, one person at a time, is how this country can be brought back to repentance, and maybe, maybe God will show mercy on us for a while longer. Nobody but God knows his plans, but we do know that we factor into his plans. Our prayers, our learning, our reading, witness, and teaching, it factors into his plans. So although we don't work to be saved, we now work because we're saved, and that's our call. So if you're saved, it's time to get to work. If you're not saved, what are you waiting for? If you looked around you, the chaos that we're seeing everywhere, just know that for those that are saved, this life is our literal hell. It is the worst life we'll ever experience since our next life is one of paradise, a world absent the brokenness and evil of sin. For those of you that aren't saved, this is literally, no matter how terrible it is, this is literally your heaven, the best life you'll ever experience, as your next life will be one of experiencing the wrath of God, the penalty for your sin for all eternity because of your unrepentant heart. Saved or unsaved, we have things to think about and stuff to do. So, no matter who you are, look around you, figure out where you stand, and get to it. One of the most shocking things to me out of 
so many choices that came out of this COVID debacle, and don't worry, this isn't going to be a COVID rant, is the fact that for some reason a large number, and from the numbers of people complying with masking, locking down, and injections, I'd say a majority of people suddenly decided en masse that the various governments and governing officials care about them. If you watched any of the presidential debates or saw any of President Biden's rally babblings, you no doubt heard him use the emotionally manipulative anecdote of the empty chair at the kitchen table. Now, I'm not saying that many families didn't actually experience that scenario. I'm saying it's a manipulative ploy to make us all feel like he just loves and cares for each one of us. Now, I'll consent that there are some some, and I'll turn my focus inward to the United States for this, who I could point to and say that I believe that this politician, he or she, legitimately cares about the individual. While most just group us with the sea of faceless, nameless, pointless humanity, only pandering to us when they need campaign donations or votes. And generally, and I'll admit maybe I was naive to this, Generally, the United States population has had a healthy distrust of their elected officials until fear gripped the nation. At that point, we turned to any strongman that said they loved us and just did what they said because, because they said they loved us and, and they cared about us and they, they wouldn't lie, right? Government is a necessary evil. We can't have anarchy. That never works. That's just king of the hill with guns and barbed wire wrapped bats and hunting knives and the hill is usually made out of the bodies of those you had to kill to get to the top of it look at portland the chaz and chop zones they started as uh, everyone for themselves with the concept that they could just exist in some sort of a commune type society then they set up borders then they set up guards at the borders then they developed a police force and a jail system they had to negotiate with the outside world to get utilities and food, etc. And whatever they are right now, I just saw where they're charging rent to homeless people to live there, or something like that. I didn't really care enough to look it back up. But who has made all these decisions for this zone? Those that are in charge. Their government of the zone. See, we can't have anarchy for long. Government is a necessary evil. Paul told us in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now I know you've heard that a hundred times, 
Many times in recent history, as many churches, many pastors, have been trying to reassure and remind their congregants that even President Dingelfritz is there for a specific reason, appointed by God, for his purposes, ultimately for his glory. And as someone that leans heavily toward the Reformed camp, I absolutely agree. Biden is there because God wanted him there. Case closed. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to like it, right? My question is, what do we do when respect and honor doesn't appear to be owed to someone that has no honor and gives no reason to respect him? What happens when a government or an authority, granted, still placed there by God, goes against what Paul is stating, when it's the people in charge that are doing the wrong. I know that when Paul wrote this, the Jews were under severe oppression, and he still wrote it. The question, at least for me, still persists. And then you see an article that's turned into a few articles of a very dramatic saga being played out in the United Kingdom, where those with authority are, in my opinion, out of control with their perceived wisdom and their granted powers. This, my friends, is something that we all need to be praying about right now. A large number of articles, all found on BBC.com, the article that caught my attention had the headline of Archie Battersby, Court Rules, Life Support Can End. The background of this article, dated July 15th, goes back to April 7th, when 12-year-old Archie Battersby was found unresponsive with a cord around his neck by his mother. The speculation, and I'm not positive if they ever confirmed this or not, was that he was taking part in yet another stupid online challenge of some sort. He was brought to the hospital in a coma, and one month later, in early May, various doctors were telling the parents and the courts that he was likely brain dead, or some called it brain stem dead, he would not recover, and it was time to remove any mechanical aids that were keeping him alive. The parents and extended family do not want to end life support at this time. The case has gone to court, multiple courts, with the judges siding with the hospital and the doctors saying that there's no hope he needs to be taken off of life support. They've moved through various stages of appeal, losing at every level. The lawyers for the hospital have said that continuing life support was burdensome, contrary to dignity, and ethically distressing for the medics that were treating him. As of our article on July 15th, they had lost yet another appeal. As of July 25th, they've lost yet another appeal. In losing that appeal, they were granted some more time to appeal the ruling, this time with the intention of appealing to the European Court of Human Rights. With the pace this is moving, there's no telling where this will be when this episode drops, although I'm dropping it relatively quickly. From April 7th to the beginning of May, one month, hospitals, lawyers, doctors, and judges have decided that Archie is not worthy of life. Now, is he brain dead? Uh, maybe. Will he ever recover? I, I don't know. Maybe not. Do we have the ability to sustain life for now? We absolutely do. Obviously, we absolutely do. So why is this such a big deal? Why not just allow him months, years even, to wait and see? So I don't know all the reasons, but I guess there are probably two main reasons. One, we're talking about socialist health care. Archie is taking up a bed, a machine. All that costs the overburdened British health care system, the government, and ultimately the taxpayer, a lot of money. And number two, 
Christian Morality is also on life support in the UK, and the funny little plug is just barely hanging on in the receptacle. All you need to do is look up the National Health Service, the single-payer, read that as government-paid, healthcare system, and you'll find article after article about the failure of the system. Complaints like not enough doctors, not enough beds, not enough equipment, excessively long wait times for emergency services, excessively long wait times for basic medical maintenance or procedures, and on and on it goes. Admittedly, no medical system is perfect, but the NHS is arguably one of the worst in the industrialized nations. Of course, you get those either on the socialist left that don't live in the UK, or those that live in the UK and have never really had an urgent medical need that claim it's a wonderful system because it's totally free. You just walk in, get your stuff done, walk out, never pay a dime or a, a, a farthing. or Anyway... I see no need to mention their outrageous tax rate. You know, no point in talking about that. That's partially used to pay for their mismanaged government-run boondoggle of a healthcare system. Because of this systemic mess, it's not really surprising that they just pronounce anyone dead, move them off the bed, chuck them on the pile, and brush the sheets off for the next sorry sod that's been waiting hours or days for that bed. Now, as bad of a bill of health as their healthcare system has... It's not the biggest issue. The biggest problem is that the spiritual health of the UK is in dire straits. According to a poll conducted by the National Center for Social Research in Great Britain in 2019, only 38% of Brits identified as being Christian. This is down from 66% in 1998. 52% say they're not religious, with most of them being very or extremely unreligious. And most of that 52% said that they were never brought up with religion. So this is a cancer that's now reaching multiple generations worth of rot. Unfortunately, when you unhitch from the Bible, when you unhitch from even the basic principles of humanity or sanctity of life that are found in the Bible, this is what you get. I maintain that you cannot remove the morals and ethics only Christianity provides and continue to regard human life as precious. At this point, from their worldview, which is most likely non-religious, the doctors, the nurses, the lawyers, and the judges see Archie as nothing but an evolved ape, an overdeveloped animal that has already died, and we all know that when you die, that's it. Lights off. So why would we continue spending time and money on a lost cause? In their worldview, there is nothing of any particular value in a human much greater than an animal. There is definitely no room for miraculous, unexplainable healing— I don't know if the parents are Christians, but I find it interesting that they're using a Christian legal organization to help fight for their rights as parents to keep their son alive, at least for a while longer. Only Christians truly understand the sanctity of human life, as we know that all human beings are image bearers of God. Genesis 1 tells us that we were created in God's image and had the breath of life breathed into us. We know from David's writings in the Psalms that God knitted us together in the womb, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We see the same in Job. We further learn from the Psalms that God knew every day of our life before there was even one. We know from Jeremiah that before Jeremiah was born, God already had his plans for him. The same with Paul, as told in Galatians. We know that Cain killed Abel by spilling his blood, and Genesis tells us that Abel's blood was crying out to God from the ground, and because he did this evil, Cain was then cursed. The Mosaic laws are very clear about murder and manslaughter. 
The Ten Commandments tell us, and I quote, You shall not murder, or, if you prefer in the King James, Thou shalt not kill, or in the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible, No go murder nobody. I love the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. Jesus himself tells us that not one sparrow is unknown and unseen by God, and we are of infinitely greater value than a sparrow to the point that God knows each and every hair on each one of our heads. Admittedly, some of us are a bit easier to keep track of than others. So should Archie be kept alive, even if there truly is no hope? (laughs) It's not my call. That's not the doctor's or the lawyer's or the judge's call. If we lived back even a handful of decades ago, Archie would have died. There would have been no way to sustain his life. We have the ability to do that now. Does that mean that we should or that we're obligated to? I'd have to say no. I I don't think we have the obligation to keep someone on a machine indefinitely. But again, that's not the call of anyone other than those that truly love him. I believe that God does miracles today. I don't believe we can call miraculous healings down from heaven. I don't think we can command the Holy Spirit to work his magic. But I do believe that our prayers are part of God's plan and that God performs miracles according to his plan and purpose. I also believe that what's happening with Archie and his family is exactly what was foreordained to happen. That God did not for one microsecond lose control of one atom of this creation. If this happened, and it did... It was part of the larger plan God has that none of us could ever hope to understand fully. I also know that whatever happens from this point on is again in complete control by God. That said, from a human viewpoint, I can't even fathom the emotional turmoil Archie's family is going through, but I do know this, the future of Archie should be determined by his parents and only his parents. In time, they may, they likely will, come to terms with what's happened and decide to let this shell of a body cease to function. But that's their decision, not the decision of a bureaucracy. I know that this isn't my typical review, and I know that there are more than just Archie that are facing the same kind of situation. But as things come across my newsfeed, certain articles catch my attention. And this is one where I think we can be praying for Archie, for his family, for miraculous healing for peace, for the family. And we can offer God our praise because we know that no matter what, he's a good God. He's a loving God. And that his plan is perfect, even when we don't understand it. So if you will, join me in offering a prayer on behalf of his family. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.